0: So we are in week three of four weeks in Philippians 4, and today we're going to look, as you've heard, at uh, chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Next week, just to let the uh, pressure build, next week, Aaron Corley is going to be preaching. He's right back there. Raise your hand, Aaron. He's going to be preaching. He's one of our NCST students. And then, hot news off the press, the week after that, one of our other NCST students, Jeff Black, is going to be preaching. Both these guys will be bringing the word for the very first time. So pray for them. Be nice to them. Be gracious. I'm going to be on vacation starting, well, as soon as we get done here. So that means I won't go as long as sometimes. Um, but be praying for them as, uh, as they get a chance to preach God's word in the upcoming weeks. Let me read for you from Philippians 4 here and we will look at it together. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So read the words of the living God. So there is a, a statement, a quote, a quote that has been attributed to Thomas Edison, but I couldn't find anywhere that it actually shows that he said this. So I don't think he said it, but someone said it, and if someone decided along the way, it sounds like something Thomas Edison would say. He said, somebody said, 5% of people think. 10% of people think they think. And the other 85% of people would rather die than think. What do you think? That's a pretty cynical statement, isn't it? Now, you could understand what would drive someone to a conclusion like that. It's a, it's a pretty damning statement about this person's observation of people. I hope it's not true. I hope it, in this church it's not true. I hope 100% of us think. The, the cynical statement uh, is discouraging because if it's true, it means that we human beings are not exercising this most wonderful of gifts that God has given to us that separates us from the rest of creation, such as animals. You know, we have bodies, animals have bodies, and from a vantage point, there's a lot of similarity. Our bodies function largely the same way that animals' bodies function. In fact, in some cases, they're interchangeable. Uh, Some of you know the story of my dad before he passed away, years before he passed away when they thought he was going to die uh, many years ago. He had to have a heart procedure where they put a pig heart valve inside of his heart valve and it took and he lived another 10 or 11 years after that when they told him he would die right away without this. And you may remember I told the story. He had the choice between a pig valve and a synthetically created valve by man. And he thought, I mean, he was torn because the, heart, the pig valve, he said, that way, if I do that one, whenever I eat bacon, I'll feel like I'm a cannibal. But uh, he ended up going with that. And it took because the bodies are not that much different. But what separates us from the animal kingdom is what happens in the inner man. We have self-consciousness. We have the ability to reason. We are not driven merely by instinct. We have affections and emotions and wills and decision-making processes where we can take things out and abstract them and find premises and how they lead to conclusions and then evaluate whether or not those premises lead to those conclusions. That's what is uniquely ours as human beings. And if it's true that 85% of us do not exercise our minds the way we were created to, that would be a very troubling statistic. I don't think it's true. I don't think it's true. I don't think it's possible for human beings not to think. Now, it may be true that 85% of us don't think well, but we can't. Get away from using our minds. We do it all the time, except maybe when we're sleeping. And even there, I think, there's some evidence that our minds are still at work. Do you realize how much emphasis the Scripture puts on our thinking? The passage is read to you. Uh, the word is translated dwell, and we'll come back a little bit later and talk about why that's a good interpretation of what's going on. The word is just a simple word in the Greek, which means to think, but it involves more than just letting some things roll around. It has to do with thinking, has to do with judging, discerning, which route to take, discerning whether this is good or bad. It has to do with planning, making decisions about the future, what we hope to do in the future. It has to do with our resolve, acting out on those basic thoughts and and making dedicated decisions to go this direction or that direction. That's what this word entails. And he says, think on these things. Dwell, ponder, reflect, decide based on these things. And it's, been emphasized all the way through these last few weeks in the passages if you've been paying attention. Go back with me for a moment to chapter 3, verse 17, where we started where Paul says, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pa- uh, pattern you have in us. He's, he's starting where he finished this section. Look at us, look at me, do what you've seen in me, practice what you've seen in me. And then he gives that list of things that we talked about a couple of weeks ago that are, that are pretty stark, pretty, pretty moving as far as what's going on in the world. For many walk of whom I've often told you and now tell you even weeping, they are enemies of Christ. And what do these enemies of Christ look like? Their end is destruction or their goal is destruction, so they're seeking to destroy things. Their God is their appetite or their belly. Their glory is in their shame. And remember we talked about this. It all stems from where their minds are. They set their minds on the things of the earth. now Paul doesn't use this terminology, but today we would call them secularists. They may give a hat tip to the supernatural, to God up there, but their minds are set on the here and now. And they evaluate everything in light of the here and now. They don't have any concept of the transcendent. Uh, They don't don't think that right now matters later. Remember we talked about that you start from nothing and you're going to nothing and in between you're trying to make sense of life. And if that's all there is, the here and now, then absolutely you're going to strive for whatever makes you happy. Your desires will be your God. And whether it's shameful in some transcendent way, you don't care. You're going to glory in what you find attractive. And if that means destroying other people, you do it. That's that's what we're seeing all around us right now. And it's not new to the 21st century. It's not new to the current cultural milieu. It's it's been around forever. And Paul says, they set their minds, they, they focus their minds on the here and now, but you, Christian... Understand there is something beyond the here and now. We are citizens of heaven. Now, what that does not mean is, Christian, stop living in the here and now. Or don't care about the here and now. No, 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 no. The whole point is live in the here and the now because you know your ultimate destiny and your ultimate hope and the ultimate meaning of all things is beyond the here and now. That should transform how we think. And how we live. So then he gets into the first part of chapter 4. What are we to do in this culture? Stand firm in the Lord. Don't be pushed around by these secular thoughts. Then he said, live in harmony. Remember he called out those two ladies? yo and sentit and said, hey you, be of the same mind. Literally in the Greek there, it's have the same mind or come to a meeting of the minds. Think. Pull yourselves back a little bit from your strife and your struggle and whatever's causing dissension and remember you belong to a heavenly realm. Bring it up to a higher level and get along in the Lord. And then he says rejoice in the Lord and be gentle. And then he says don't be anxious for anything. Instead of being anxious for things, what are we supposed to do? Come on, what? Pray, tell God what? What we want. Make our requests known with thanksgiving and then he will do what? He will give us his peace and he will send his army, remember the guarding idea, and guard what? Our hearts and our minds. Because so much of our anxiety starts right here with what we think. And if we can bring those requests to the Lord, he will surround us with his peace and with his goodness and protect our minds. And then our passage today, finally he says, let me tell you what to think about. Where to focus your mind. And it lists off these things, what is true, what is honorable, what is right, what is pure, and so on. Now here's the thing, as you read through the New Testament, you see over and over again instruction about our minds. Paul says in Romans 12, you probably know this, don't be conformed to the world, don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by what? Renewing of your mind, it all starts with what we think. There's a lot of focus in the New Testament on what we think. This is really hard. This is hard for us. It's hard for all of us for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's hard because we just don't cut out the space and make the space for thinking. That's a generalization. Maybe some of you do it more than others. But by and large, my observation of myself and others is we don't carve out the space. And then when we do think, we allow ourselves to think about things that are not helpful. So, let me ask you, rhetorically, how much time do you spend thinking? Actively thinking, intentionally thinking. How much time this week? If we could pull up all the hours of the last seven days and we could watch in your head. Now, again, I'm, I'm arguing. I believe that we are thinking all the time but if we could pull those thoughts out and say, okay, during this portion of time on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, you were intentional about thinking. How many spaces in your calendar would we find? It's hard. We have to plan for it. We have to make space for it. And one of the things that gets in our way, everybody's got them, When I go like this, you know exactly what I'm gonna refer to, right? I've got one on my wrist. We have these devices that are wonderful in so many ways, but they are constantly clamoring for for our attention. Like children, think of some of you are young mothers especially, and we've been there. And those little beings are constantly needing your attention. I mean, you got it easy right now, but just wait. In a few months, that little baby that's all just so, look, she's just so gentle and quiet, and all you gotta do is this, and everything's fine, feed her once in a while, that's all gonna change. I remember, you know, with Sophie, our firstborn, I did get the order of my children finally, by the way, if you were here last week, I I know I have a son, he's the thirdborn, Uh, but when my firstborn was born, I could not wait for her to walk. Like, she's going to walk when she's four months. She's going to put everybody else to shame, right? That's, that's what I wanted. I'm holding her up, trying to teach her to walk. Like, by the time the second one and the third one come around, i like, I don't care if you don't walk for 10 years. <laughs> right? Amen. They're constantly after you for attention. And imagine if you're for you men, for us men, to think about our wives, how hard it is to carve out time because when you do get a little bit of space, a little bit of time, what do you want to do? Sleep, (laughs) right? But even if we're not the mother of little children, we have other things nagging us for attention all the time. And we have to set aside intentional time if we're going to think and reflect and ponder and make good decisions. And that's hard work. We we tend to feel like we're not doing anything if we are just thinking. You feel that way at all? My family tries to pressure me in this. I have my my study at home, and the rule is if I'm in there, then my family isn't, and the doors are closed, my family's supposed to leave me alone because I'm studying and doing important things. Well, rules are made to be broken, right? So my, uh, my family, all of them will come and look. I mean, you can see from, from the other part of the house that the doors are closed. But they walk right up, and I've got the, you know, the panels with the glass so you can see right through it, and they will look in. Like, are you doing anything? Like, that's why we made the rule. The doors are closed. I'm doing so. so if I have my computer open, they leave me alone but if I am sitting there without my computer open and not a book in my hand, they assume something about me. What do they assume? I'm not doing anything. And they come right in and ask me questions. And I get more frustrated confession time, I get more frustrated when I'm thinking and they interrupt me than if I'm typing emails or, or reading or researching or whatever because that thought time is just, for me, it's, that, it's precious time. And when you, you, know, you get those thoughts and you're really thinking through well and it gets interrupted, sometimes you're like, oh, I'm never going to get back there again. That could have been the world-transforming thought I was having. This could change the church. This could change everything, and now it's gone. We have to carve out time to think. Thinking is doing something. If I could communicate one thing through this entire sermon, it is that thinking is doing something. Something that is vital for us as human beings. Now, I create my own temptations with this. I love to have input. I love to to learn. I love to read, I love to listen to books, I love to listen to podcasts, and so I go on you know, a three-mile walk almost every day, and I drive around a lot, and I'm constantly bringing input. And you know me, I was a music major, I love music, but I, I have to really be intentional about making time for music, because I really love to learn. I love to know what other people are thinking. But you know what I'm not doing when I'm listening constantly or reading constantly to other people's thoughts, I'm not thinking. It's kind of like if, if you make ice cream, which I would encourage you all to do, when, you know, if you just had ingredients being poured into your bowl, nonstop, cream, sugar, vanilla extract, chocolate, whatever other ingredients, if you're just nothing but pouring in ingredients forever, you have no ice cream, you have a mess, you have a big pile of nothing, you got to let it stir for a while, a long while, and then you got to put it in the freezer and let it sit. We have to do the same thing with thinking. There is a time, even, keep me in context here, even when it comes to reading the Bible, how easily do we go through and we put our eyes across the words and then we check the box, yep, did my devotions, and we get on about life. We grow far more if we read the words and then set the book down and say, what does this mean? What is the truth that God has revealed in what I just read? That requires time. That requires not going anywhere else in our thinking and just sitting in the truth that we've just read. It's hard work to set aside time, and we are so easily distracted. Some of the distractions we create on our own, some is just our minds are not trained to be focused. You've heard all the jokes about the attention spans being reduced, and they're jokes because we know they're somewhat true. They're they're sort of cliche because there's some truth to it, the seven-minute attention span or whatever. We have to retrain our, th- our thinking, retrain our minds to meditate, to reflect, to ponder. And you've got to get past the guilty feelings of, I'm wasting my time, I'm not doing anything. No, you are doing something. You're doing what God tells you to do. You are thinking. So you, you make the time. What do you think about? Paul tells you. Paul tells you, whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, anything that is excellent or worthy of praise, dwell on these things. That's why the NAS here translates as dwell, sit. What's a dweller do? They sit, right? A cave dweller lives in the cave. They sit in the cave. It's a good place to think, by the way dwell in these things. So we're going to go back and play the tape of your past week. And we're going to examine your thoughts. Is that a scary proposition? You realize we are going to stand before the Lord Jesus someday and we are told in the scripture that everything we've ever thought is on the tape? When you think about Judgment Day, Judgment Day is going to be a really long, long day. (laughs) Because every thought you and I have had is there. Where were your thoughts this week? Were they on true things? Pure things? Things worthy of praise? Excellent things? Right things? honorable things, how often do we go down bad paths in our minds and hearts because we allow ourselves to dwell on things that are not in that category. Again, I, I love technology. If I weren't a pastor or a musician, my third realm, I think, would be something. Into I love technology. I'm, I'm tempted to always want to get the newest and best thing. Someone in this church who will go nameless uh, let me drive their Tesla the other day. That was bad. That was bad. I can't afford a Tesla. But now I want. I didn't want because I hadn't experienced it. Now I want. And it's awesome. I can't wait till that becomes norm. I'll wait and buy his in 10 years. I love technology, phones are so helpful. Computers open up all kinds of wonderful things. But you know, it also is right there with you all the time where you can access media and social media. And that can be very discouraging. Everything I read from Paul's list here the media and social media is largely on the other end of the spectrum. Just take the news for a minute. Oh, somebody set a timer for me. <laughs> the news, when I was a kid, there was a particular newspaper called the National Enquirer, and everybody understood that that was just a sensationalist kind of thing. You couldn't trust a word that was in it. People bought it and read it like crazy, but it had the reputation of just being that extreme, sensational kind of thing. The news, whether it was the evening news or newspapers, had a reputation of trying to be somewhat unbiased and give you facts they've pretty much all dispensed with even the cover of that now on all sides right side left side it doesn't matter their business model is all about getting clicks and watches people viewing we are we're foolish to trust news outlets for being a, unbiased and objective and what is it that gets clicks what is it that causes people to want to come back and watch more? It's usually the negative. Paint things in such a way that's going to alarm and alert people and, and create that sense of panic or, or get them worked up. And We are so easily drawn to those kind of things. Well, what happens when we allow our minds to dwell on the things that are false, fake news, which is such a popular term right now, we allow ourselves to think about the things that are dishonorable and wrong and of bad reputation and not worthy of praise, but worthy of shame and condemning. When we allow ourselves to sit in those things, it does not promote righteousness and hope and joy and peace. It promotes all the opposite of that. One thing that I've observed as I've talked to people and counseled people who struggle with, with discouragement, depression, those kind of things, is when we get in those places, we are drawn to others who are also down and discouraged. We, we, we want some empathy. We want to, to know that we're not the only ones. And there's some, some comfort in that at times. But if you spend most of your mind and and your attention with other people who are in the same struggle, neither of you are gonna get out. I, I, I can't help somebody out of a pit if I'm in the pit too. We have to seek out help from those who can point us in in a better direction because they're not struggling with the same thing. And and I just picked out a couple of things. No matter whatever our struggle is, whatever it is that you're you're challenged with right now, you have a tendency to want to feed that with other people who are struggling with the same thing. I tell uh, guys all the time in accountability groups, for instance, especially when it comes to the heart issues and lust and that kind of thing, I said, the last thing you want if you struggle, for instance, with pornography is to find an accountability partner who also struggles with that. They can't help you. Obviously, they can't help you. You want someone who's not dealing with that particular struggle because they can help pull you out. Well, If we surround, if we we sit and dwell on the things that are negative and discouraging and down, then it makes perfect sense why we would continue to struggle and be negative and down and frustrated. Friday night, for those of us who are here, for the American Gospel presentation. Really great movie. For those of you who weren't here, you should watch it. Watch it as families. It's really, really good. There was a clip from our, uh, of our president, and he made, uh, as, as is contrary to his nature, he made some very bombastic statements. <laughs> and at one point, somebody was asking him about repentance, and he made this statement, I, I, I don't need to repent. I try not to do things I need to repent of. Yeah, okay. And, and he's very positive in his outlook on things. Now, if you only, if you only uh, hear his enemies describe him, they focus on all the, the when he attacks the, the left and that kind of thing. But I don't know that I've ever seen a national leader in my lifetime who speaks so often of hopeful things, of positive things for the nation. Well, there's a reason why he does that. He knows the people who really endorse him; they want to hear that. Well, why is he doing that? Well, he said it in this video. His pastor when he was younger was Norman Vincent Peale. How many of you have never heard of Norman Vincent Peale? Good. I promise not to embarrass you. He was huge a generation or two ago. He wrote a book called The Power of Positive Thinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, oh yeah, no, I know. Yes. Someone has said that Paul is appealing and Peel is appalling. (laughs) It sold, I forget now how many zeros, how many numbers of copies, millions. It's it's one of the perennial bestsellers. Why? He got this much uh, right, I can't say right. He got in the general direction of rightness with his thesis that we should think positively. The problem is, and all of his disciples, it becomes humanistic, it becomes self-creating. I can create my own reality. If I just think good thoughts, I can make good things happen. And basically, you become God, right? God is the one who can just think something and it occurs the way he wants it to. And that is now passed on to us. And we say, I'm just going to believe it. I'm going to have positive thoughts. I'm not going to let any negativity enter my head and my heart. And life is going to be good. It's blasphemous and heretical and idolatrous. But there's one element of it that is close enough to what the Scripture teaches that people get it all confused. And here's what we need to draw, not from Norman Vincent Peale, but from Paul and the rest of the New Testament. If these people who have basically abandoned the truth of God can live life thinking about things that are right and true and good and hopeful and so on, how much more? should we who understand the grace of God and the truth of God think about what is true and what is right and what is pure and what is excellent? How much more? Because we know the truth. We know what we've been saved from. We know the truth is we deserve eternal wrath from God. And that God loved us so much he sent his son to die on the cross to take our punishment. And God has redeemed us. He's put his spirit in us. He's given us new hearts and new minds. And he's promised us eternal life with him forever. How much more should people who understand that truth think about things that are full of hope and joy and good not just in terms of future, but in terms of now. How different would your life be if you carved out regular time to set your phone down, put the books down, shut the door, put a warning sign on the outside of the door, enter on threat of something or go on a long walk this is a great city to live in if you like to be outdoors go on a long walk and don't put the earbuds in go on a drive and don't put the earbuds in and decide to think about good things and evaluate what is going on there out in the world based on what is true, not based on what somebody else said, whether it's me or your parents or a really great book, what does God say is true and right and excellent? Oh, how much of our lives, our inner man is driven into bad places and unpleasant places because we don't grab a hold of our thinking and push it in the direction that will lead to good things. We have this mind. It's a gift of God. It separates us from the animal kingdom, from mere brute beasts. And as Christians, we have the mind of Christ. We have renewed minds. Let's use them. to use them, church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I am always so moved by reading the Gospels as we see how you were always, in every situation, were mindful. And your actions were controlled by thoughts that were pleasing to the Father, and we want to follow in your footsteps. And Lord, we don't always do it, and we fail, and we get distracted, and we do allow ourselves to sit for a while in the, in the, the negative things, but Lord, in your grace, would you use your word, your spirit, to draw us out of that and cause us to think on the, the better things, so that we can stand firm, so that we can be of one mind, that we can rejoice in the Lord. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.